Well, uh, excited to be back in the book of Ecclesiastes. We have had a wonderful time in Ecclesiastes prior to our Christmas season, and now we are back in it. I wanted to call your attention to our year theme. Each year as a church, we have a theme, and this year it's all in. All in is the theme for our congregation this year. I told the parable, or retold the parable of Jesus. It talks about the man who was in search of fine pearls, and he found a pearl of great price, And he went and sold everything he had so that he could lay hands on that particular pearl. And uh, he he had a garage sale, in a sense, of everything that he had. Jesus told this parable to help us understand what it's like to follow him, to come to Christ, to, to, to embrace the kingdom of heaven. It means letting go of everything else, to be all in in the kingdom of heaven. And so we're hoping and praying that in many, many ways, we would see God releasing our grasp on the attachments that hold us back, and freeing us up to be all in with him during this coming year. Um, talked about how in the summer I was cleaning out under the stairs in my house, and uh, we have a couple of stairways, been there for nine years, and realized that many things had accumulated there that we no longer needed, um, and, and we hadn't thrown them out, so piled it all in the garage, and then piled it all in my van, and uh, my wife walked by, uh, and said, you know, I'm not going to look and see what you're throwing away because I don't even want to know what it is. I might, you know, try to pull it back out again. Uh, and then I drove off to the dump and released it all out of the back of the van and drove away. I had this tremendous sense of freedom, right? This tremendous sense of freedom when you get rid of that, that baggage that you've been carrying. And spiritually, that's true as well. We carry baggage with us and we want to release it. It's hard, though, just like my wife walking by and seeing everything in the van, it's hard to let go of it sometimes. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is helping us in that process. And you may ask, what does it really mean to be all in? And there are lots of different ways, but in this text we're looking at today, we're going to see a very specific way that it means to be all in with God, to let go of those attachments and to really embrace what God has for us. So would you open with us to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you need a Bible, we've got uh, Bibles in the back here that we would love to hand to you, so just raise your hand. And if I could get somebody to help with passing those out, that would be great. Um, just raise your hand if you, if you need a Bible, we'll get one to you. It's on page 472 in that particular Bible that we're handing out. And if you don't have a Bible at home, take this Bible with you. We want you to have easy access to it whenever you need it. Um, Ecclesiastes 5, we're going to be reading verse 8 through chapter 6, verse 9, and this is a longish sort of passage, and so I apologize for that, but there's a reason I'll explain later why we can't separate this. This is one continuous chunk, and so we're going to read it and uh, follow along, and um, it'll it'll be good. It'll be worth it. Um, so verse 8, kind of setting the scene here. If you, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. So in this whole context of, of greed, and, and let me give you a little background on the book of Ecclesiastes. You may have forgotten since we haven't been in Ecclesiastes for a little while. Ecclesiastes is written during a time when there's great innovation uh, going on in the nation. There's economic changes that are happening, and this has created kind of a frenzy, a business frenzy. There are those who are pursuing wealth in the midst of all the change and the transformation. Uh, they're trying to, to get their slice of the pie. And so there's kind of this intensity. It's actually somewhat similar to our time today, uh, somewhat similar to our environment where there's lots of innovation happening and everybody wants to get a piece of the pie. There was lots of wealth. And so we see that in the high officials here, verse 9. But this is gain, but, but this is gain for a land in every way. A king 
committed to cultivated the fields. Now, sometimes if a king were to have the land, then it would be protected from the wealth and the, and the prospecting that would go on. And so this is an important aspect. Now, here's where we really tie into the theme, though, about being released to be all in with the Lord. Verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So in other words, the appetite grows to meet the means. You notice this the case. Whenever you get more money, your appetite grows so that suddenly you don't have money. You're living on the edge of your means again. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil or a sickening evil would be another way to translate that, that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came. So the one who has all of this suddenly loses it and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil or sickening. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Verse 18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, we'll come back to that phrase, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Now, I said I was going to explain to you why we're taking this longer passage altogether, and the reason is evident here in verse 20, which I'm about to read. But let me explain to you a little bit of the structure of this passage. This is what's called a chiasm, chiastic structure. They're structure that's found all throughout the Old Testament in the Psalms and the Proverbs in particular. And if you put up the next slide, you can see uh, what a chiasm is. It just means that it's, it, it treats a particular topic and then another topic. And then the main point would be C there. And then it goes back to the, 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 the second topic and then back to the first topic. And this text that we're looking at today is structured in that way. And the very center of it is verse 20 of chapter 5. And so this, if you're going to underline anything in your Bible, this is the verse you want to underline. This is the part that, we, that, 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 that the, the teacher wants us to really see. Verse 20, for he will not much remember the days of his life. That's just you or me, anybody, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. God is the one who keeps him, us, occupied with joy in our heart. Now, we'll come back and unfold that a little bit more, but I want you to know that's where we're headed. Chapter 6, verse 1. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavily on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil, a sickening evil. The man fathers a hundred children, lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, 
but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes, the stillborn child, in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, there are three uh, axioms that I want to pull out of this text that we've read. And the first one won't be surprising to you, especially as you're paying attention in the very beginning of it. It's simply this. Number one is that the writer of Koholot is telling us is that money won't satisfy. Money won't satisfy. That's axiom number one. Now, I know that we are among a thoughtful bunch here. And so probably this is not news to you. Um, We understand that money and the pursuit of wealth is not going to fill the hole in our hearts. But even so, even understanding that, we can't let this axiom, this point, just sort of lie there. We need to talk about it a little bit for a couple of reasons. Number one, we need to acknowledge we are wealthy. So we are the kind of people that are being talked about in this passage. Um, If you look at the global rich list, you'll see that if you make $50,000 in a year, you are in the top 0.3% of all people in the world in terms of wealth. If you make $100,000 a year, you are in the top 0.08% of all people in the world in terms of wealth. See, and if if you go on up from there, it just gets more and more incredible. So, So being Americans at this time, living in this place, we are the kind of people Kiholet, the teacher, is addressing here. That we might have a proper understanding of wealth and money. That we might think about it rightly. And the second reason that we can't just let this lie and, and say it's good enough to know in our brains that money won't satisfy is because attachment to money happens to be a very subtle thing. And we can know deep down that we're not attached to it, it's not important to us, and and that wealth doesn't really matter, and having everything doesn't really matter. We can know that. We can say it in our heads. But the tentacles of wealth and money and riches, they, they continually extend out to try and grasp a toehold in our hearts and to draw us in. And so we need to carefully be on our guard. We need to be constantly vigilant over the temptation to be drawn in to trusting in wealth and riches and money for our comfort for our our steadfastness, for our foundation, and all of these things. I love what it says in verse 11 of chapter 5. When goods increase, that means when you get a raise, right? Or you get more money. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? In other words, every time you, you get a raise or you get more money, your eyes and your appetite sort of grow is what he's saying. And so you quickly find that edge again where you're just living right on the edge of your means. So you, you were living down here and then now you have more. And instead of just having that gap, what the normal human tendency is, is to grow our needs, our wants, 
and, and rise quickly to that, to that area where we're just right on the edge of our means again. We complicate our lives more. We involve more. We take on more responsibility uh, sometimes for things that we don't need to take on. We, we, we just find that edge. That's what he's saying. Verse 7 in chapter 6 says, All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. So every time you get more, your appetite will go up. That's the natural human tendency. And you will find that point where you're living right on the edge of your means. Now, I happen to believe it's actually very difficult to be a modern person in the United States in a Western culture right now. It's very challenging because we don't have external limitations on what we own and what we possess so much of the time and, and on our time as well. Think of technology, for example. Uh, it used to be that when you left work, you know, nobody could call you at home. They only had your work phone number and they couldn't call you at home. But now you carry your phone with you and you got it at home and so somebody can call you. And so we're, we're losing these external limits and, and, and if we're, we're going to survive, we've got to replace them with internal limits, with, with us saying no to things, right? As we have more, more abundance, more wealth, it's going to be more incumbent upon us to take the responsibility to say no to things that are not healthy. We can't rely on, on the fact that there's just not enough food, and so this is all we're going to eat. There's endless food, and so we have to be able to say no to it. And the same happens with money. And that's what the, the writer of Kohol is saying. Is that as it grows, the, the appetite continues to grow unless you say no to it. You need, there's incre- incredible pressure upon us as modern Americans to have these internal limits, this incredible self-control with respect to technology and wealth and all of these things. It's an incredible responsibility that we're being given. We're all like kings in a sense. And so we've got to decide what we will and we won't have, and it's a great pressure. It's very hard to be a modern person. I was thinking about this with respect to this text, and in this text in particular, it's talking about wealth and riches. And how do we put those limitations on us? And I think one of the key ways that we, we do that is when we create a budget. And so I'm going to get very practical here and just say one of the key ways that we can follow the teaching of Kohelet here, the teacher, is to make a budget so that we don't just grow with with the expanding resources that we might have. We've got to find some way to have internal limitation on what we have. And a budget is a simple way to do that. It says that this is what I need to live on. And everything else is extra. And some of it may go to some of the things I want, but I don't really necessarily need. But if I know it's there and it's free, maybe some of it will go to good causes. Maybe some of it will go to support the things that I believe in or the people who have need or the poor people around me. If I keep that, then I can think about, I can not just be driven by my appetite and so that I can be a good steward of what God has given. And we have a class, we just finished it on on finances and, and Dave Monk led that and he would be happy to give you information if you're at that point. It's a great time to to make a budget. It's a spirit, I think it's a spiritual exercise to, to create some sort of internal limitation on our, our spending. Uh, and, and he can help you out. We have other people in the congregation who, who love to make budgets. They're crazy people, but they love to do that, and so they would help you, help you with that. But this, this becomes something that's actually part of your spiritual health then, to be able to say no to what 
we have, right? Because we want to remind ourselves that money will not satisfy and those attachments are not healthy. My wife and I have been talking about this and we've decided to go back to this old system of budgeting that we use that was very barbaric in a sense, but uh, very effective. Uh, we just use this, it's called the envelope system. Some of you may have heard, I can tell you about it later if you want to know the details. But when we graduated from, when we finished graduate school, both of us in graduate school at the same time, and mostly me, I had $35,000 worth of debt uh, after finishing school, and we were, you know, I didn't go into one of those lucrative careers, and so wasn't able to pay it off immediately. And so we were really uh, hardcore about this, this system, and by God's grace, we were to pay it all off. In a fairly short amount of time, it was amazing. I don't even, still don't understand how that happened. But it, it was part because of discipline in this area. And, and we just decided, you know what? I think we can be more disciplined in this area. We can do better with the resources that God has given to us to be stewards of it, to be able to bless more people and serve more and, 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 and not just let our appetites lead us. And so we're going back to our old brute system here in the next little while. It'll be fun to see how that works out. Once we accept this idea that money won't satisfy, we are going to be continually working against it for the rest of our lives and building systems to try and figure out how to reinforce that truth. And when you do that, what you end up with is tremendous freedom, right? And how much anxiety. They say that marriages break apart because of money uh, and stress about money and, 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 and all kinds of anxiety as a result of this. What a freedom. What freedom it is to be freed from those attachments what a beautiful thing. What a great message that the writer of Ecclesiastes has for us. Money won't satisfy. That's, that's number one. The axiom number two is this. There is evil in not enjoying life. Did you see that in the text? There's evil in not enjoying life. This one kind of got me from sideways, and I had to get my head around this one as I was reading it. It says literally there's a grievous evil or a sickening evil associated with it. And, and most of us would agree that not enjoying life is a loss, right? We'd say, that's, that's too bad. That's a bummer. We didn't enjoy life. But what the writer is saying is actually worse than that. There is an evil associated with not enjoying life. There's an evil associated with it. Now, this is a very complicated topic. Um, we know sometimes there's issues of depression and crisis. We might be in a season where it's very difficult. But sometimes it's a result of this endless pursuit of more while never being grateful for what we have that leads to it. The writer talks about this. He says there's a lot of toil, eating in darkness, um, and that may be death, but it also might just be the solitude, the person who works so hard that they're always eating in solitude, in, in, in darkness, uh, in, in sol- by themselves. There's, there's the vexation that comes with it. He says there's sickness. These are the terms that he uses. There's anger often associated uh, it all goes into accumulating much, but then he says at the end of the day, it can all be lost in one moment. In one moment, it can disappear just like that. And then he says this amazing same, if that's what life about, is it about, if it's just about toil, eating in darkness, vexation, sickness, anger, if it's all about that and you can lose it all in a moment, then you're better off just to be stillborn. You're better off just to be stillborn. That's what he says. It's a very powerful, powerful statement. Verse 3 in chapter 6. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. 
That is strong statement. There's evil associated with not enjoying the life we've been given. There's sickness associated with not enjoying the life that we've been given. And some of us are sick. I'm sick. I'm a hard driver. I I always like to see what's next and what have we not accomplished yet and how could it be better and where's the more, right? Where's the more? And every time I pursue that more, you know, there's temptation to not be thankful for what is already. And, so, and, and, and this is the invitation that Kohelet is, is, is giving to us. He's inviting us to stop chasing the more. Whether it be money, or whether it be that next job, which is just a little bit better than the current job that we have. Uh, whether it be perfection in some way, whether it be success, whether it even be our family. I think some of us who are parents can get into this mindset where, you know, our family's just not right, and it's never good enough. It's never right. We're, we're continually pursuing more. We want more. For, we want it to be better. It could just be better. And we forget to just stop and rest and enjoy what God has given. There's an evil in continually hungering for more at the expense of enjoying what already is. And so the invitation for you and for me today is that we would stop, take a break from more, and relish what is. That we take a break from pursuing more and relish what is. Chapter 5, verse 18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Now you may be hearing that and you say, okay, but how do I enjoy it? I I don't know what to do. What does it mean to enjoy life? What God has given. And the good news, the good news of the gospel is that God wants to help you to do that. So this takes us to our third axiom, number three. Enjoyment comes from the hand of God. Enjoyment comes from the hand of God. Verse 19 in chapter 5 in the beginning tells us that enjoyment requires power. Did you know that? To enjoy life, we need power, power from outside of us. And God has that power. Read with me verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. In other words, you can have wealth and possessions, but no power to enjoy them. And to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. So, so God, get, God has the power. And, and he tells us in the second part of verse 19 that this power is given to us as a gift. You don't have to buy it, purchase it. You don't have to have a special gift card for it. God gives it as a gift. This is the gift, he says in, in verse 19, of God. So let me read that verse. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. If you don't have that, you can't enjoy them. And to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. God wants to give that gift to us. The gift of joy. And then verse 20 tells us something even more miraculous and and wonderful and good is that he will keep us in that gift all the while. 
It's not just for one moment that we'll receive that gift of the power to enjoy what God has given. He will keep us in it. Verse 24, he will not much remember, that's us, you and me, we will not much remember the days of our life. And you find that to be the case. The older I get, man, the harder it is to remember all the days of my life. Uh, Because God keeps you, me, occupied with joy in our heart. That's the vision. That's the heavenly vision for life in this fallen, broken world. Enjoyment comes from the hand of God, which means that if we're going to turn the corner on this joy thing and become joyful in the way that God wants us to become joyful, then we need to go to Him first and foremost, not to the wealth, not to the possessions, not to whatever else. We're to go to God because it's from His hand that enjoyment is given and joy is provided. So how do you do that? How do you go to God? You read more. If you didn't hear the sermon last Sunday that John Iwaki preached, I encourage you to get online on our website and to listen to that. He talked about starting your day every day in the Word of God and not just how to do that, but why that's so important and what a privilege and a treasure it is. So go listen to John Iwaki's sermon. Um, He's not sitting there at this service. (laughs) John's uh, sermon from last week uh, about reading your Bible. But it's not just reading your Bible. It's also, if you want to draw near to God, the source of joy, you got to pray more, right? you got to pray more. So why do we wait until dinner time? Or why do we wait until Sunday to pray? We can drop the knee at any moment and pray. God, the creator of the universe and sustainer of the universe is waiting for us to put down what we're doing and talk to him. That's what he wants. He stands ready to listen so we can draw near to him through prayer. We can worship more. This is how the New Testament church drew close to God. This is how they became filled, overflowing with joy so that the people around them were drawn to Jesus Christ. Is, this is how they did it. They read their Bible, the, the apostles' teaching a lot. They, they, uh, they prayed like crazy. And then they worshiped together every day. They worshiped together all the time. So we have this once-a-week opportunity to come together. Let's get here on time. Let's remember when we walk in this door, we have reason to praise God. So let's sing out with the praises that are, should be in our hearts because of what God has done. Let's come together. And then lastly, they, they met together to talk about what they were learning talk about God, talk about their struggles, pray together. They were in fellowship. And that's what we do in our home groups. If we want to have joy, we've got to get close to God. And the way you get close to God, according to the New Testament, uh, is that you read your scripture, you pray, you worship, and you get in community with other people. And in the midst of that, you see God's hand working in your life. And that's how the wealth and the possessions that you already have are now empowered to be joy bringers in your life. You're to be thankful for that. This was driven home to me um, so powerfully this last October when my wife and I went to Cancun for our 20th anniversary. And we went, never done this before. We went to this all expenses, you know, all inclusive uh, resort in Cancun and we spent seven days there. We haven't done that in 17 years, just the two of us alone for a week. We had all the food that we could eat. There were 12 restaurants, and you could go really whenever it was open. And, you know, if you finished one meal and you were still hungry, you just asked for a menu and order another meal. It was amazing. Uh, and, and then you could order another one after that. You could just eat to your heart's You could have room service at any time, 24 hours a day, uh, all the food you wanted. 
Uh, I love one of my, I, I mean, I, it was great food, that was great, but one of my little weaknesses is potato chips. And uh, they, they had potato chips in the fridge, and so every day I would open the fridge and I would eat the bag of potato chips. And, and, and then the next day would come and I would open the fridge and be a new bag of potato chips in the fridge. It was like they just knew exactly what, where the way to my heart was, was through potato chips. Uh, and, and my wife loves to drink lots of water, especially when it's hot and humid like it was there. And, uh, and, and, and so, you know, the first night, you know, it's hot and she needs to drink lots of water. And she calls up and she says, can I have three bottles of water kind of sheepishly, you know. So they bring up three bottles and the next night, well, that worked. Can I have four bottles of water tonight, you know. We went up to like 15 bottles of water, you know, like we were going to take a bath in the, in the, in the, in the drinking water. Um, but they just, there was just so much food, so much to drink. There was so much beauty in that place. Uh, the water, if you've seen pictures in Cancun, the water is just this incredible blue and it's clear and you look through to it and you just could sit there and stare at it. It was so gorgeous and the sun and the sky was just amazing uh, just so much beauty there, and my wife was beautiful too, uh, being there. So much beauty in that place, uh, and 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 then and then we had uh, rest time. We could just sleep all day if we wanted to, or sleep on the beach, or you could sleep by the pool if you didn't like the beauty of the ocean. You got the beauty of the pool. I mean, just all kinds of just everything that you could possibly want uh, in terms of wealth and provision and everything. And here's the thing that happened in the middle of all this it was so amazing to me. I found. There were moments, even in that place, when my mood would start to darken, right? Now, maybe I'm just crazy, but I think, actually, this is part of the human condition. Even when we have everything, everything that we could possibly dream of, right? We, it somehow isn't enough. It doesn't satisfy. And so I wondered, what is this going on that my mood could darken in a place like this? How could that happen, Lord? What kind of a person am I? And then I remembered texts like this one that say, you know what, whatever you have, you can't enjoy it without the power of God. So what did we do? We started, we started praying more. We had this kind of, we would just, we would get up in the morning, we would pray, the two of us, my wife and I, just pray and pray and pray. And it was so good. And we would read our Bibles for a good portion of the day. So rather than drawing away from God in the midst of abundance, we drew closer. And that made all the difference. And suddenly everything was more enjoyable and more wonderful because it's God who gives us the power to enjoy his gifts. And if we try to hang our satisfaction on the abundance of this world, whatever it is, we'll never be satisfied. We'll never be satisfied. And God keeps us there. As we, as we keep in close relationship with him, he keeps us there. I said to myself when I was in, Lord, I guess I can't even enjoy this without you. And that's true. You can't enjoy anything ultimately fully without the gracious, loving hand of God. What a great lesson that was. In the midst of abundance, don't turn away from God. Turn towards him all the more because you need him all the more. Trust him. This is what Jesus did. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see that? Jesus trusted God the Father in loss so that we could trust 
God the Father in abundance. We've been given abundance. We don't even understand, we don't begin to understand the abundance that Jesus has brought about because of the cross. The spiritual grace and forgiveness and, and, and the riches and the inheritance that we have, we only have begun to understand what that is through Jesus Christ because he trusted God in loss and going to the cross and willingly at sacrificing himself. We can trust God in the midst of tremendous abundance and riches. And that's the call on us today, to trust God in abundance, in the riches. Would you pray with me? Lord, some of us need to acknowledge that money has become an idol for us. We just simply need to acknowledge that this morning, that wealth and security and comfort, the kind that can be found in money, or at least we think can be found where there has a grip on us. It's a, we're attached to it. And so we ask that you would forgive us. Forgive us for that idolatry. Release our grip from it. Some of us need to do some simple hard work this morning. We just need to make a budget because every time we get more money, we spend more money without thinking carefully. And we're wasting the resources that you have given to us on things that are not eternal. And you want us to put those into eternal things. And so help us to do the hard work of, of thinking through what it means to be good stewards of what you've given. And if that means making a budget for us, then give us the strength to do I know that some of us, that's like, you know, uh, fingernails on a chalkboard making a budget. But with God's help, we can do it. And so help us, Lord, to do that hard work for your glory. Maybe if we see it in its spiritual context, it will make sense and we'll be motivated. Some of us are sick with lack of joy this morning. We have much, but we enjoy little. We don't realize there's an evil in lack of joy. And so forgive us. Forgive us for failing to mirror your goodness and grace in our lives through our gratitude and joy. Keep us from contributing to the evil of this world through joylessness. Help us to point to you in our joy, to ascribe glory to you through our gratitude, which is so fitting. Gratitude is the right and good and true way to see the world around us. Thank you for giving us the power to enjoy life, uh, most fully through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and all the spiritual inheritance that comes from being heirs co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We thank you for all of those blessings. But we also pray and ask that uh, in the day-to-day living, as we wait on you, you would fill us with the power to enjoy your good gifts in our lives. Give us the gift of, of joy, we pray. And thank you for keeping us in that joy day-to-day. And, and we know that Oftentimes, that's contingent upon our turning towards you and waiting on you, praying, reading our Bibles, being in fellowship, worshiping, Lord. We need all of those. We need all of those desperately so that we can be close to you and we can derive strength from you. Keep us today and and, and every day in your joy so that it might spill out of us into the lives of others and that you ultimately might be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.